Hello. There must have been a sigh of relief in Westminster when Channel 4 announced there wouldn't be another series of The Andrew Neil Show, at least this year. The former Sunday Times editor has become, arguably, the best political interviewer in the business, someone whom Boris Johnson and Liz Truss were desperate to avoid, despite the fact that Neil makes no secret of his free market views and is in charge of The Spectator magazine, now up for sale. But once in the interviewer's chair, he is scrupulously fair and formidable. In our second podcast this week, the first was with Stuart Purvis, we're talking to the man who spent 25 years at the BBC presenting programmes such as This Week, Sunday Politics, The Daily Politics and Politics Live. Andrew Neil then left the corporation and became the lead presenter and chairman of GB News. But not for long, after only eight programmes, he left. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. So will the Andrew Neil show ever return to Channel 4, do you think? Do you know? It won't return this year. Um, Channel 4 say they haven't got the money to bring it back. And uh, it seems it's not just they haven't got the money to bring my show back. There seems to be quite a few shows are now suffering from Channel 4's lack of money. They've kept open the option of 2024. Of course, that's likely to be an election year, but there's nothing firm or definite in the calendar to bring it back. So, if uh, would you pick up the phone if the BBC Director-General called to make you an offer? Uh, I'd pick up the phone whether he was calling to make me an offer or not. Well, it's always pleasant to hear from the Director-General of the BBC or any other controller of a major network. Would you like him to make you an offer? Oh, I think that's his decision. I've, I've got so much to do at the moment, I'm not looking for work. No, but it seems to me inconceivable with the general election coming up. You would not like to be interviewing the key people. I mean, that's your—that's when you come alive. That's your life, isn't it? You don't want to sit on the sidelines and watch somebody else, do you? Well, next year's another country, and who knows what I'll be doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've done it a lot. I like doing it. If I didn't do it in the 2024 election, it wouldn't be the end of the world. But... Um, if the Channel 4 option doesn't materialise, we're always open to offers, like uh, all good freelancers, including yourselves. We never say no to anything that might come our way, at least until we've considered it. Well, in the view of a lot of people, and in my view, you are now the best political interviewer, um, and it would seem to be uh, ridiculous that you were not on the air during the election and the run-up to it. Uh, do you think? Do you worry for the longer-form political interview? I mean, you've had little trouble in the last, uh, you know, the last uh, period uh, when Boris Johnson wouldn't come on your show and so on. Yeah. Does it really... All this trust. Yes, all this trust, and we can <laughs> speculate on the reasons. But anyway, do you, do you worry for the future of that? And why do you think the longer-form political interview is so vital? I, I do worry for the future of it because it doesn't happen very often these days. That's the fault of the broadcasters as much as the uh, politicians. I mean, politicians seem to run wary of it. Some run scared. Most are, are wary of it. But the broadcasters, our public service broadcasters, have lost the tradition of the long-form uh, interview as well, which always uh, seems strange to me because it's not exactly expensive television, but it's good television. They've done well. It gets a decent audience. I mean, during the election campaigns when I was doing the primetime interviews on BBC One with the party leaders, it was getting over three million a shot, plus many, many more when it was sliced and diced for social media. That's pretty good, I would have thought. That's sometimes as good as EastEnders 
uh, at night. So I think it is a pity. I think politicians have rather liked the fact that broadcasters have lost interest in it. It's much easier for them to deal with the quick interview on the sofa, the quick in-out couple of questions can't really be pinned down. The interview in which a ton of work has gone into the preparation, in which the homework has been done, which the interview has been crafted, game plan, designed, in my view, fundamentally to elicit, does a politician who wants to govern us, want to decide our taxes, wants to decide our spending, wants to decide between war and peace, do they know what they're talking about? And to establish that, that takes a long form interview. Of course, the broadcasters would say they have less power, as it were, to... Well, they never had the power to compel politicians no. to, to no. go on. But in the past, when there were relatively few outlets, in the end, most political leaders came on. They would play the game between ITV and BBC and so on, or maybe Channel 4, but they'd come on. Now they've got so many opportunities, they will say to themselves, well, why should we? I mean, I remember actually going further back. When Mrs Thatcher ran in 1975 for the Conservative Party leadership, she was supposed to appear on Panorama, a thing I was producing with a lot of the, with all the other contenders. She was advised to pull out by Gordon Rees at the last moment, and she did, though she was, to be fair to her, she didn't like doing so. So there's always been, you know, they've always been wary. But now they don't have to appear, do they? No, they don't have to appear. And I think that is, I, look, there is no point in any kind of broadcasting, news broadcasting, but particularly public service broadcasting, unless its job is to hold politicians to account and to do so in a, in a rigorous way, not to rush it, to do it over time. And, you know, modern technology allows for wonderful ways of doing it. I mean, before, I think the year before the pandemic, I, I interviewed Malcolm Turnbull, former Prime Minister of Australia. And we actually taped, I think, about 35 minutes for the interview. And we put the full 35 minutes out online. We cut it down to 20 minutes to go out on the daily politics. And then we ran clips of it, maybe 90 seconds long, on social media. So you had everything there. You had sound bites, you had a properly edited 20 minutes, and you had the full Monty unedited. Perfect for every different taste. Digital technology allows you to do that now, allows you to record very long interviews, even if you're not going to broadcast them all. But the fact that you post the full interview online is a guarantee that in the editing, you've not skewed it. You've not edited it in a biased way. People can check that your edit is representative of the full-length interview. And yet we've lost doing all of that. We don't do any of that now. Um, you were frustrated to a degree, weren't you, a, few, a couple of years ago with uh, the opportunities available because you wanted to start GB News uh, because you obviously thought it could do something that other broadcasters couldn't do. What was your vision for GB News? My main vision for GB News was a news service that came at the news, at the issues, from a different perspective than the existing broadcasters. I mean, the existing broadcast news is... Uh, it is a various shades of liberal left. Some a bit more, some are a bit left, but generally that's the consensus from which British broadcasting news comes from. It's not just Britain, by the way. That's pretty much true of broadcasting all over the world, certainly in the democratic world. And I thought there was a different dialogue to be had that did not 
involve going anywhere near Fox News or the uh, outer space of conspiracy theories or racism or just nonsense. But simply, for example, which I tried to do when I ended the one successful interview in my brief eight nights that I broadcast for GB News, was my interview with the Chancellor, who happened then to be Mr. Sunak. And in the course of that interview, I said to him, can you tell us the cost of net zero, of decarbonizing the whole economy? And he couldn't do it. And he said afterwards, no one's ever asked me that question before. And that, I think, is, you know, the, the consensus in the existing, the established broadcasters is so much in favor of net zero, unquestioning, that no one had ever asked the Chancellor what the cost would be. That's the kind of difference I hope GB News would make, where it would come from. But sadly, as we all know, it was not to be. Well, you interviewed the Chancellor, but recently we've had two Conservative MPs interviewing their own Chancellor, which frankly raises the suspicions in even the most innocent of minds that perhaps this is not going to be most, the most thorough of interviews. I, I find it incredible. I mean, uh, look, as a country, we are replete with good broadcasters. We don't need politicians to take our jobs, particularly since they're not very good at it either. You know, I'm not trying to take a politician's job. You're not trying to take a politician's job. Why are they trying to take our jobs? I'm very surprised that it's gone down this road. I don't think it works. I think sometimes it's embarrassing. Politicians, they all seem to be conservative as well, which seems to be a bit um, sniffy to me. A conservative politician, a serving conservative politician, interviewing a conservative government minister, I'm actually surprised. It, it has surprised me how tolerant Ofcom has been of this kind of stuff. Certainly when I was involved in trying to put together GB News, it never struck me that Ofcom would allow that sort of thing to happen. Indeed, I was regarded Ofcom as something of an ally in keeping us within the bounds of proper mainstream broadcasting. Does that mean you think that Ofcom is not doing its job in properly policing the rules of impartiality? I'm just surprised at what Ofcom allows the channel to get away with. You think it shouldn't allow, be allowed to get away with that? I don't think serving politicians should be allowed to present political programmes, at least not, uh, not unless all the major parties are providing the presenters as well, which would leave no jobs for anybody but uh, politicians. You know, when I launched Sky News, we, we had a programme uh, which uh, involved Norman Tebbit and Austin Mitchell. Target. He was called Target, wasn't it? Yeah, and that, and that was a left-right clash, and it was presented, though, by a journalist. The journalist was in the anchor chair uh, presenting it, and it was great TV, but it was balanced. It had well-known spokespeople of the right and the left. That's very different from having politicians actually present programmes, and I just don't think it's, it's right. Politicians are politicians, and journalists are journalists, and we should stick to doing our own knitting. So the fact that Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg is now presenting programmes, indeed reading the news, although I'm not sure Ofcom would agree with that, but as far as I can see, reading the news as well as interviewing, you think is wrong. Well, the one thing Ofcom stressed to us right from the start was that there had to be complete separation of presenters with attitude and the news, the actual news itself. 
that had to be totally separate. And I think for most of GB News, and this is the last time I saw it, they do have separate news bulletins. I, 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 I'm not aware of Jacob Rees-Mogg actually reading the news, but maybe he is. If so, that seems to me to be against the regulations. But put aside the regulations, what's the point of it? The job of any kind of program is to hold politicians to account. Well, how can you do that when the politicians are presenting the programs? I mean, it's just, it's almost a Shangri-La world. I certainly never saw it coming. Nigel Farage, I put in a different category because in many ways he's really an ex-politician now. Uh, like Michael Portillo uh, is an ex-politician. And um, Do you think they realise that? I mean, Michael Portillo might. Do you think Nigel Farage realises that he's an ex-politician? I think so. I mean, you could always go back into politics again. He's also a good broadcaster. I wasn't that key. In fact, I was against having Nigel Farage in our lineup at the launch because I was very worried it would be seen to become the Farage channel. But of course, in the end, I go and he'd come in and his ratings are pretty good. He's a good, he's a views is another matter. We could all have views on his views. I think he is a natural broadcaster. And he's not an elected politician. The other names you've mentioned are elected politicians. Can we go back then to this question of impartiality? Because you've said that, that I think what you've indicated is that I don't, you believe that there's a fundamental, if perhaps unconscious, bias towards the liberal left uh, and in the BBC. But you, you presented for, what, 15 years now, parliamentary programmes, um, morning, well, not quite morning, noon and night, uh, but a lot of the air, the airtime. Were you ever really worried that, that your programmes were not impartial and that producers were pushing you, you know, into areas that you didn't think they should or from a particular perspective? Because I'd be very surprised if that was the case. No, I wasn't worried about that, and it didn't happen because I had a brilliant team at Millbank. Remember, our shows came out of Millbank, which has a different ethos and different attitude to... BBC Westminster, yeah. yeah. BBC Westminster compared to BBC Broadcasting House. And, of course, we were far removed from the suits who only sort of ever paid us a once-a-year royal visit just to see how the peasants were getting on. So they, um, it meant we were ignored most of the time, which had its pluses and its, uh, its minuses. I, I must say the teams I worked with of the Daily Politics and Politics Lives, well, the BBC had its best. So if you think that, that, that it, in terms of the Westminster coverage, the BBC is impartial, I, I, you've expressed... No, I'm talking about my programmes. Oh, your programmes. All right. You, you see, the thing is, when I'm looking... There's a news-gathering operation at Millbank as well, which has nothing to do with me. No, but when I look at this, I, I look at Robbie Jibb, you know, for, for example, uh, who ran Westminster programmes. Well, he went off to, to be... Uh, uh, the spokesman for a prime minister. I look at, uh, you know, uh, one or two others there who seem to have made the transition to representing the Conservative government quite easily, and they're all coming out of BBC News. So it's quite strange that there should be the suggestion that the news is not impartial. Well, I didn't suggest necessarily that the news was not impartial. I'm saying that the overall ethos of the BBC leans uh, to the centre-left, or it's sometimes a little bit more than that. That's incontroversial. It's also, I think pretty uncontroversial. It's also not just true of uh, Britain, it's true of every public service broadcaster around the world. It's, I mean, it's 
I wonder whether what actually is at the heart of a lot of this is your belief, which I would agree with, is that, you know, for, for, if you like, too many journalists come from an arts, a liberal arts background. Not enough journalists actually know anything about the economy and business. And that was certainly my weakness in my early, well, probably now is still. But in my early years, I was very weak in terms of understanding the economy and business and so on. And that is where the problem lay, not so much an intention as actually ability and I still think that perhaps is the case. Do you think that sometimes you're seeing bias where actually you should see ignorance? Um, no. I think sometimes the bias uh, isn't a product of ignorance, it's a product of attitudes. And I think that current demographic and psychological trends are enhancing that. Now, one of the broadcasters, and by the way, this isn't just true of public service broadcasters, Almost all broadcasters lean to the, the left now. It's just endemic. I'm not really sure there's much you can do about it. I really stop worrying about it. You take the big American broadcasters, other than Fox, which is right-wing because of Rupert Murdoch, because of one man is the guiding light in it. Every major American broadcaster, CBS, NBC, uh, ABC, um, CNN, all of them private companies or publicly quoted companies, all of them lean to the left, in some cases, pretty far left, like MSNBC. Are you sure you're not, you're not confusing the natural role of journalists to question authority, question those in government, to question those in power, and automatically assuming that that means a left bias? So why had nobody questioned the Chancellor about the cost of net zero? Uh, probably because they don't think like that in terms of understanding the yeah, economic then you costs. Make my, my no, point no, I know, but it's financial and economic costs, you know, people just not having any real understanding of or thinking in those terms. There was a debate on the uh, Today programme recently on whether we were now, had. it was rather a belated debate because it's already happened, about how, have we now returned to an era of big government? Something I've been writing about, the answer is yes, we have returned to an era of big government, both on, not just on the left, but on the right too. We have big government conservatives in recent years, whether it's Boris Johnson in Britain or uh, Donald Trump in, in America. So there was debating on that, and the BBC's idea of a debate on that was to have three pundits, three commentators, one of them an economist, all of whom believed in big government. Now, I happen to think that there's a case for more big government at the moment too. I'm not actually arguing with that. We're in a different era from Thatcher and Reagan. But that does, is not a proper coverage of the arguments. And we live now in a, a metropolitan rest of the country divide. And this isn't just true in Britain, this is true in most major economies. And broadcasters are a product of the, of the metropolitan environment and they don't often reflect the views in the rest of the country. And metropolitan areas are now overwhelmingly on the left. I mean, you and I are old enough to remember when London was as much a Tory city as it was a Labour city. Uh, Glasgow, half of those MPs used to be conservative. Manchester used to be much more finely biased. Now Glasgow, Manchester, they're all one-party states. Effectively, now London is an overwhelmingly Labour city. If that's the pool from which you're drawing, particularly white-collar, middle-class, university-educated, and so on, then you will get a specific type of person that has a general consensus view of the world. That is why private sector broadcasters are just as left, sometimes even more left than the BBC. I think it's endemic 
and I'm not sure much can be done about it. Do you think, therefore, it's worth trying to preserve public service broadcasting in this country? And, and do you support uh, the present BBC Director-General's emphasis on impartiality? In other words, in, in crude terms, is the BBC, in your point of view, worth saving? Yes, I think it is, because it's one of the things that if you think of what makes Britain special, and uh, sometimes of quality, the BBC is one of the institutions that you think of uh, on that. I think it is difficult, because if I'm right, that my analysis that it is just changes in society have produced a liberal left dominance of our broadcasting, that's a particular problem for the BBC. Because if ITV or Sky or CNN have these attitudes, which they do, sometimes much more so than the BBC, then we just don't have to watch it and we're not paying for it if we're not watching it. But the BBC is different. We all pay for the BBC. And that puts a special premium on the BBC trying to be as impartial as it can. But I think it's very difficult with the composition of the BBC as it is. The BBC's idea of diversity is really of gender and of race. It is not of diversity of opinion, which is pretty monolithic. It's not diversity of class. It's still an overwhelmingly middle to upper middle class institution as well. And I think all these things make it difficult. I think the DG, I think, has done a lot of work to try and do it. The man you mentioned earlier, Robbie Gibb, has also been trying to do some stuff too. My own view is it's probably mission impossible because no one has achieved this, Roger, anywhere. You know, I was in Australia in April. ABC, which is the very prestigious equivalent of the BBC in Australia, is much more left-wing than the BBC. NPR, or um, PBS, as it's called in television, in America, is much more left-wing than Britain or Australia. ARD in Germany is basically a social democratic in outlook. I think it's just, you know, as night follows day, as spring follows winter, that's what it's like. Well, hold on, hold on, Andrew. You're not a man who's, uh, uh, who ducks a challenge. There's a vacancy at the top of the PBC now for chairman. Uh, if asked, would you put your name forward? No. Why not? You obviously think there's a job to be done. There's a job to be done, but it's not a job for me now. If you'd come to me ten years ago, I would have said yes, but you didn't. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, can I ask you one other thing about this impartiality area, which is the, the, the vexed question of social media. Uh, people refer to it in terms of the Gary Lineker problem, but there you are yourself. You've done the BBC shows at the same time you've been chair of The Spectator. You've written articles for The Daily Mail. Uh, your views are very clear. Um, do you think that, that the BBC has got itself in, in an unnecessary mess about social media, it should just accept that presenters will ex use their rights of freedom of speech. No, I think the BBC is right. I, I was, how I tweet now is very different from how I tweeted when I was at the BBC. Uh, I'm also out of contract with Channel 4, so I'm free to tweet as much as I like. I think, no, I think if you are with the BBC, you have certain responsibilities. I think these responsibilities are far greater if you're a political journalist or indeed any kind of journalist. I think they're less so if you're Gary Lineker. He's, he still has a huge platform, which the BBC gives him, and that gives him all these followers. But I'm less exercised uh, by, by that. You know, I don't. You know, I think Andy Murray is. We're speaking at Wimbledon. Andy Murray's a great tennis player, but what he thinks about Scottish independence, I don't really care. So uh, I, I think you do. I, you you cannot 
be in the studio and try for impartiality and then go and tweet some right wing or left wing biased stuff. I think you have to be broadly careful what you do. After all, it's a privilege to be a presenter of a major news program or current affairs show. And with it comes responsibilities. If in the unlikely event I was ever to be back on the BBC, I would substantially curtail my tweeting. Well, we shall see what happens when, as I think largely prob- probable, the BBC will offer you something. I'm sure they will. <laughs> I wouldn't hold your breath. <laughs> well, I'd be stupid if they didn't. Um, however, right, just one thing, though, I want to ask you finally about BBC News. Uh, Tony Hall told me on the, the Foreign DG on the, on the podcast, at the, uh, at the core of the BBC's news, I think the BBC should be investing more in its news operation, to be honest with you. In other words, other things need to be cut first. Would you broadly agree with that? You have reservations about the news coverage, but do you disagree with the fact it should be at the core of what the BBC does? Oh, I, I, I think there is no purpose to the BBC that is not a major global news-gathering operation. I think that is at the core of what the BBC does, and it probably takes the BBC, given the size of our country, Quite hard. I mean, Sky News, in terms of resource and reporting, does a fantastic job. But I think if you want to have the foreign correspondents, the expertise, the specialists, you probably need something like the BBC. I think the problem, though, for the BBC is that although the licence fee brings in, what now, about £4 billion a year, and it gets another billion from BBC Studios and other enterprises, I'm afraid, although it sounds a lot of money, five billion is nothing in the day of the streamers. And, you know, the BBC News has been nickel and dimed for years. And you see that now. I'm very struck now. Put aside issues of content, which, of course, is the most important. But in terms of how channels look, when I sit in my apartment in New York and I go through all the news channels, you can see immediately when you come to the BBC now, because it looks about 20 years out of date. The graphics are old-fashioned. The studio sets are flat. Uh, it doesn't have the pizzazz or the, the, the dynamism, the energy of the American news channels, or may I say the French news channels. Um, I don't mean France 24 because that's a state-funded one, but, but BFM TV, C News. I think the BBC is in danger of, uh, if you just look at the election night programs, look at the, the graphics packages CNN and NBC and uh, Fox News use compared to the BBC's graphic packages. I think, you know, there was a time when we were up there with the best. Indeed, when I moved to America in the late 70s, I often thought there were many things that British TV could teach the Americans. I don't think that these days, I'm afraid. And I think that the BBC just doesn't have the the money to do these things anymore. And, I, and it's not going to get the money which is why I fear it's in long-term decline. And uh, just one last question about Fox, if I may, uh, because you obviously worked significantly for Rupert Murdoch in the past. Were you shocked when you saw those documents which revealed that Fox executives and presenters knew, of course, that Donald Trump had lost the election, but said the opposite on screen in order to protect their revenue streams? Yes, I was shocked, and I thought it was disgraceful. And I thought it was the act nation of journalism and of a duty to tell the truth to viewers, whatever your views uh, are. And I think it, it shows that when you're purely driven by your wallet, you end up making terrible mistakes. And for Fox in America, I think this is their equivalent of the hacking uh, scandal 
the tabloid papers, particularly Mr. Murdoch's, have gone through in the United Kingdom. The tabloid papers, the tabloid hacking scandal resulted in the closure of the news of the world, a massive scandal which dragged British journalism into the dirt. It's cost Rupert Murdoch over a billion pounds now, he's had to shell out a billion pounds. And I think what happened with Fox uh, after the election in 2020 is going to cost at least another billion pounds. He's already had to pay out over 800 million to one of the, to the Dominion election machine company. There's another one waiting to get at least as much there. And uh, he will have to pay the price. But I think journalistically it was a disgraceful thing, uh, a shameful thing, actually. And finally, um, Andrew Neil, uh, you've ruled out being uh, future chair of the BBC. I take it you want to remain chair of the Spectator as long as possible. Is that true? No, I, I don't actually now because the Spectator's up for sale. And my only priority for the moment is to help prepare the Spectator for sale, to find a decent home for it and to get a decent price for it. And uh, after that, uh, I'm not sure, I have no idea whether I would still be involved or not, whether any new owner would want me to be involved or whether I would want to be involved, depending on the new owner. So uh, I've got the next six months with The Spectator, and then I'll be coming to see if you need someone to make your coffee on your podcast. Uh, yes, well, uh, I might be coming to see you because finally, I mean, I've heard that you are a passionate fan of Italian rap. Can this be true? Uh, well, I do like Italian rap, yeah, and I know a little bit about it as well. <laughs> and, uh, I got it from the soundtracks to the, the uh, Sky Italia's TV series, Gomorrah, which is probably the greatest crime series that's ever been made for television. Makes The Sopranos look like a tea party. It's almost documentary in parts, and they used Italian rap to uh, illustrate... Uh, the various rather harrowing parts of this. So I've got to like Italian rap, and I have it on my Spotify feed. <laughs> All right, well, uh, perhaps you'll have a little more time in the next six months to listen to it, but I hope after, the, after that, <laughs> I, mean, I hope that's I mean, bad. I mean, I may have so much time <laughs> that I'll be able to write some of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you're back in the fray soon. Andrew Neil. thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you, Roger. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week. Uh, please do support our journalism. It's less than a cup of coffee at £2 per month, which also gives you access to a weekly newsletter. You can find the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform, where you will also find details of how to contact us on Twitter, Mastodon and by email. And if you didn't know already, this podcast is presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it's produced by Kate Dixon. The sound is by Dave Kitto, and special thanks to Quingenti. It's a good egg production. Thanks for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>